0: We are going to now hear scripture, and if you haven't been with us in the last couple of weeks, we have just started a new sermon series on the letters of Peter that are in the New Testament, First and Second Peter, and we are going to be looking at Second, First uh, Peter, the second chapter. Um, the page number, I believe, is is eight fifty. So 1 Peter chapter 2 we're going to be looking at, that's page 850, and if you can open up your Bibles, we're going to be looking just at three verses today. You'll remember as you're finding it that Peter is writing to churches in Asia Minor, which equivalent are modern-day Turkey, and he's writing to a community that's been under persecution, that's uh, endured suffering. And as you have it open to 1 Peter chapter 2, you'll notice that the start of those three verses starts with this word, Therefore. And if you were with us last week, we had this, our scripture start the same way. And you might recall that when we see a therefore, when we're reading, particularly a letter, it tells us that the writer is about to say something that's connected with what he just shared with us. So as you have those Bibles open, before we actually read from chapter two, let's quickly recap what Peter has already said. If you haven't been with us, this is very helpful. If you've been with us each week, this might seem redundant. But it's really important, as well, especially in the Bible when we're looking at letters, that we understand that this is a whole unit of thought. I mean, Peter has an argument that he's trying to make, a case that he's trying to make. And as we're looking at it in pieces, we have to keep the whole together. As you have those Bibles open, you see um, chapter numbers and verses, verse numbers. You've got to remember, those are not... We're not part of the original letter. How many of you guys write an email and put chapters and verses? Um, We don't do that. You just kind of write. And Peter did the same thing. These were inserted later uh, as a way of dividing Scripture so we could find our way around. And it's helpful, but sometimes it can make us artificially break up what is units of thought in a letter like this. And so let's consider what Peter has already said. So before we get to what we're going to read next... Peter has started by saying, though we find ourselves as exiles in the world, outsiders, the truth is we're chosen. We have been chosen. We are not strangers, despite appearances to the contrary. We are children of God our Father, Peter writes, through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And more than this, we, have been, we are children of God because we've been given birth, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the basis of our new identity, the resurrection of Christ from the dead. But not only an identity Peter establishes for us, but he also says we not only have this understanding of our identity, we also have this inheritance that comes from Christ's resurrection, an inheritance of salvation that will not perish, Peter underscores, will not spoil, will not fade. Peter, from laying this foundation of who we are and what we have, goes on to direct us. This is what we looked at last week. He gives us a series of commands, but his commands are not a checklist. They're not a checklist, a series of things we have to do in order to prove or establish ourselves. Peter's instructions to us at the end of the first part of this letter are to direct us to the kind of attitudes and behaviors that naturally flow out of the new life we have been born into through Christ. See, what Peter is Pointing us towards, how he's pointing us to be, is what comes out of what's already sure and steady, what's already true and accomplished for us and given to us by God. Our growth, if you will, like our birth, is God's doing. But we must yield before the work of the Spirit upon us and move forward in the increase of our faith. Living in dependence upon God, we are to mature into the image of Christ. And as we saw at the end of the first part of this letter, Peter says that progression of growing into maturity into the image of Christ involves four things. Setting our minds on the hope we have, being made holy, living with humility and respect before God, and loving others sincerely and deeply. Now, as you, if, you, if you're looking back, rather than in chapter two as I've been talking, in many ways, these first three instructions that Peter gives, these first three commands are realized in how we live out the last command. In other words, our hope, our holiness, and our humility are best reflected in how we love each other. Therefore, as we get to this next part today, as Peter continues, he's going to unpack what this kind of love looks like, as well as how love like this becomes instinctive in our lives. So, these three verses we're about to hear starting chapter two, reflect our relationship to each other and our relationship to God. So let's hear them. Chapter two, verse one. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Keep those Bibles open because a couple of quick things I want you to see before we dive into these three verses. The first is, and you can't see this in English, but every verb in these three verses right here is in the plural. See, Peter is not talking about you individually or me individually. Peter is talking to y'all. Y'all know I went to Texas this summer, so Peter's going to his Texas language. He's talking about y'all. He's talking about our relationship to one another. And Peter, as you see, begins by telling us to put aside words, attitudes, and actions that destroy our deep and real love for each other. Again, these are things that hurt us, not just you, not just me, things that hurt us. Peter reveals what real Christ-like love looks like by presenting the contrast, by stating the negative. Therefore, rid yourselves, he says. Peter uses a verb here associated with the stripping off of dirty clothes. We could say it this way, therefore, lay aside wearing these kinds of garments. And the verb tense that Peter uses here, by the way, is about acting in an ongoing way. Together, we have to continually, repeatedly strip and remove these kinds of orientations from our lives. Therefore, rid yourselves of all, lay aside all of... That small little word, but such a punch, all. Peter writes, all of these, all the time, must be completely torn off, removed completely. Peter, notice, isn't telling us to fight or resist these dimensions of our personality. He's not simply telling us to fight or resist them. He's instructing us to drop all of them like the plague and walk away. So notice how comprehensive God is being here. There are no exceptions in what Peter's writing. There are no excuses. There are no compromises. Peter is very blunt in saying, stop all of it, all the time. See, what we're going to discover is for Peter, following, being a follower of Jesus Christ, being a follower of Christ, loving like Jesus, means changing your wardrobe. And what he's doing here is he's listing five outfits Five attitudes and behaviors that went out of style the minute we were born again into the grace of salvation. Therefore, he writes, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. And what I'd like us to do is I'd like to look at these infamous five outfits that Peter is talking about. Malice. Malice refers to the desire to injure, to hurt someone with words or deeds. You know, sometimes we carelessly or impulsively say or do something that hurts another person. We didn't mean to do it, and so immediately we say we 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 catch ourselves and we take it back with an apology. In those kind of situations, this prompting of sincere remorse demonstrates an absence of malice. Malice, you see, is when we intentionally say or do something that wounds another person. Malice isn't accidental malice is purposeful evil we planned to lash out that way we wanted to draw blood we hoped to leave a mark peter says strip away all malice and he says strip away all deceit all another word for deceit is a word we don't use very often it's guile deceit or guile deceit or guile is deliberate dishonesty when we tell a lie in order to snare or lure someone into a trap. And that sounds a lot bigger, but it can be really small, the little intentional lies that we tell, the little white lies, as if to redirect to someone to what we don't want them to see or where we do want them to look. Peterman, uh, sorry, Peter, as a fisherman, would have understood the word that's used here for deceit or guile that he uses, because in Greek it means to bait the hook. Being deceitful is playing a trick in order to get our way. It's omitting or bending the truth in order to gain a personal advantage over another person. Um, Some of us have kids. Some of us, all of us, have been children. Maybe you've had this experience. I think children, in terms of these outfits, one of the first outfits children learn to wear is the, the outfit of deceit or guile. Have you ever had a situation where you've been the child or maybe with one of your children where you've um, caught them doing something or been caught and you've been called to give an account, but as a child, you realize very early on, you can only get in trouble for what your parents know, right? What they don't know, you can't get in trouble for. And then if you've been in this role as a parent, you've, 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 you've found out something, you talk to your kids about it, and then all of a sudden you find out stuff you didn't know and you go, why did you lie to me? And what does your child say? I didn't lie to you you didn't ask. (laughs) If you had asked me, I would have told you about it. That's deceit. That's guile. That is where, again, we're saying or doing something that looks true, but it's a crafty seduction. It's a partial truth. Therefore, it's a falsehood. It's a lie. Peter says, take off all deception, all deceit or guile. He also says, take off hypocrisy. Many of us have probably heard this before. The word hypocrisy originates from the world of the Greek theater. It has its origins in this practice of putting on a mask and playing a part on stage. A hy- hypocrite pretends to be something he or she is not. We engage in hypocrisy when we desire to not to be known for who we really are, not to be known for what we really stand for, but instead we behave in a way that is not genuine, that is not sincere, We're playing to the audience, if you will. We're giving people what they want to see, or at least what we think they want to see, in order to gain applause, in order to gain affirmation. More often than not, hypocrisy is about acting like, pretending that we are better than others, behaving as if we are perfect, as if we do not struggle. And again, back to parenting and childhood, and I'm a parent myself, and I've obviously been a child, but you reflect upon it, we, have, we can sometimes un, unintentionally teach our children to be hypocrites. We can teach our children to be hypocrites because our children learn very early on what we want to see, what we want to hear. And so our children become very good at showing us what we want to see, telling us what we want to hear. And when all of a sudden we catch them in that, we get very, very upset and we go, and they will say, well, this is what you wanted to see, isn't it? This is what you wanted to hear. Yeah, but I wanted it to be true. Well, that wasn't clear. I just wanted to make you happy. And again, we, it's very easy for us to engage, to subtly engage in hypocrisy. And more often than not, like I said, hypocrisy is about pretending we're better than others, that we have it all together, that we don't struggle. Again, I've talked about this before. Here's another example. It's a, I, I've, I've beat this to death, but it works. You know, an example of how hypocrisy is sort of in, ingrained in our, just our daily lives is we all know the code if I ask you, hey, how's it going? I'm fine. Right? That's, the, that's what you say. That's, that, that's how we go about our day. How you doing? Fine. I'm fine too. Great. We're all good. You, you, know, you, wanna, you know why that's, that, where that breaks down is when all of a sudden someone breaks the rules. When you go, hey, how are you doing? Not that good, actually. I don't know what to do with that. I mean, that, you're supposed to say I'm fine because... When all of a sudden the mask comes off and we go, I'm really not actually doing all that well. So how are you going to respond to that? Um, I've got this mask on right now. I'm fine. You're fine. Remember, this is what we do. That's hypocrisy just in our daily lives. We, we're, not inten- we're not open to being real about who we are. And, and Peter says, no, 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 tear that off. Tear off that hypocrisy in your life. Tear off, take off the envy Envy is something we have a hard time distinguishing. Sometimes we have a hard time distinguishing between jealousy and envy, the difference between the two. And here it is. Jealousy is being overly possessive of what belongs to you. It's a reaction to the threat of losing something to another person. Envy is a reaction to to losing something we don't even possess. It's when we're resentful of the success of another person. Envy generally works something like this. You believe someone has something you should have, and your attitude is, they shouldn't have that, I should have that. Envy is so ugly, it's so toxic, that envy will lead us not only to be resentful of another person's prosperity, but also to be happy in their misfortune. You shouldn't have had that, I should have had that, you lost it, good for you. Envy is very, very ugly, and and Peter says, strip yourself, get rid of all envy, and he completes this list of five notorious outfits with a big word, slander. Get rid of slander of every kind. The Greek word for slander literally means to speak down about another person, and that, and, and that, that really covers the full gamut. Of what slander is. Slander is the full spectrum. It includes gossip, backbiting, spreading rumors, taking cheap shots, passive-aggressive humor or comments, insulting others. Think about slander, how, how just widespread it is. We can slander another person with a raised eyebrow. We can slander someone with an unfinished sentence or a veiled accusation. We can slander another person by twisting the truth to make another person look bad, by using subtle innuendo to paint someone in a negative light. We slander when we judge others unfairly or put another person down. Slander is usually the fruit of envy. And because it is almost always done behind the back of another person, think about slander, it's almost always done behind the back of another person, it's also the seedbed of hypocrisy. What we say behind another person, and when that person shows up, we put back on our mask. Peter says, Get rid of slander. Peter is saying, These five outfits tear these dirty old clothes off, Peter writes, because they sabotage the deep love we are to have for each other. Behavior like this may be trendy, it may be fashionable. And in the world in which we live, if you think about these five, these are trendy, fashionable ways to dress in our world today. I'm gonna challenge you this week. I'm gonna challenge you this week in any place you are in these next seven days, any place you are, whatever you're listening to, listen and notice the preponderance of these five types of outfits. Listen for how much envy you hear, how much slander you hear, how much hypocrisy you hear, how much malice you hear, how much deceit you hear. It'll overwhelm you of just how fashionable this is. And yet Peter is saying, even though this kind of behavior may be trendy, not only then, but now, biblically, these kinds of behaviors have gone out of style. These kinds of clothes wear thin real fast as they often shatter friendships, wreck marriages, and divide communities. And some of us are connected to places right now where that's what we're experiencing. Friendships that are strained, marriages that are falling apart, communities that are being divided. And again, I would challenge you, as you perk up your ears in those specific situations, notice the preponderance in those places where malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and slander are running rampant. Are running rampant. Peter says, beware these cheap imitations, because they not only hurt those whom we've been called to love, but there's more harm that they do. They not only hurt those whom we love, but there's more harm. Because if you think about it, what we wear chooses to express our identity, right? What we wear says something about us. We have a saying, clothes make the man, our clothes reflect something about our identity. And many of us, I'm looking around the room, some of us even wear clothes that reflect branding. They reflect the, the, the organization that made it, or they point to someone else through what's on there. And if you think about branding, where does that idea of branding come from? You know, we used to brand our animals, our livestock, or our, so people would know that belongs to us. And so when we're branded by something else, that's a way of us saying whether we acknowledge it consciously or not, we're affiliated with this group. We're affiliated with what this stands behind. So these cheap imitations not only hurt because they hurt those whom we've been called to love, but dressing ourselves up in attitudes that only dress others down clashes with our witness of God's love for the world. It's also what Peter's getting at. And we live in times where we understand this. We're wrestling with it. This is the number one critique, right, of the church of why people want nothing to do with the God that we profess to follow, with the Jesus we say we believe in. Because on the one hand, what, what we say doesn't line up with what we wear. Because people look within the Christian community and they see all kind of malice that's taking place. They see all kind of slander. They see churches that are ripped apart in the, the midst of disagreement. They've seen marriages of people who are following Christ who treat each other horribly. They see friendships where you, this, this is representative of the God you follow. Our talk doesn't line up with our dress. And that's why we have to stop right here and ask ourselves, in light of what Peter is writing, what are we wearing? What are we wearing? You ever said this as a parent, or maybe you had it said to you as a kid, are you going to wear that out of the house? If you're a parent, you probably say, you are not wearing that out of the house. (laughs) Hear Peter in saying this, are you really going to wear that critical spirit out of the house? Are you really going to wear that that resentment, that envy out of the house? You know, we, some of us have grown up with this. Some of us, this is we're a little bit removed from it. We grew up, and there's still some of this in the air where we talk about on Sundays, when we come to church, we wear our Sunday clothes, right? We wear our Sunday best. Some of you have grown up with this ingrained in you. Some of you have been on the other side when you showed up with sandals and, a, and shorts. You know, you gotta look like you're supposed to wear your Sunday best. But if you read Peter carefully, and Paul will pick up on this, too, there should be no difference between our Sunday clothes and our regular clothes. The very idea that we talk like that fosters exactly what Peter is talking about. There should be no difference between what we wear on Sunday and what we wear every day of the week. Peter's asking, are you just going to, you know, you dress up for church, you dress up when you're going to come before the presence of God, or really before you're in front of everybody else. But outside of Sunday, are you just going to throw any old thing on? Are you just going to throw any old thing on, the same clothes you wore yesterday? Are you going to put back on those tight-fitting resentments that restrict your movement? Or are you going to put on the fresh, new outfit, the freedom of forgiveness that is ours in Christ? What are you wearing? Who gave you your fashion sense? When's the last time you checked your closet spiritually? Are we following the crowd? Are we following the crowd? Are we, is our wardrobe modeled after the contempt of society? Are we fabricating the rumors and gossip of the world around us? Or are we following Jesus, putting grace on display and setting a new trend towards building others up in our relationships? Again, when you listen this week, listen, and you'll hear, this is how you'll recognize the five outfits. In every place that you are, listen to how much talk is about building, bringing people down. Listen to how much talk is about bringing people down. And when I say bringing people down, I don't just mean critiquing or, or criticizing or insulting people. Bringing people down, that's one form, but also listen to all the flattery, all the empty talk where we puff people up insincerely. And you'll notice the lack. It's almost, it's, it'll be painfully obvious of talk that builds people up, that, it, that does, as Paul writes, speaks the truth in love. Where's our fashion sense coming from? Is it coming from following the crowd or does it come from following Jesus? And if you wanna sense, get a sense of your wardrobe, what you're wearing, here's the thing. The only way to tear off those old clothes that hurt our relationships and taint our witness for Christ, the only way to really tear them off is to make it right when we do hurt someone. Is to make it right when we do some hurt someone. You know, see one of the main differences of someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't. One of the main differences is not that we don't hurt each other. Whether you follow Jesus or not, we are going to hurt each other. We will. But one of the main differences between someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't is we're willing to be vulnerable enough to take off our clothes. The things we hide behind One of the greatest differences between someone who follows Jesus and someone who doesn't is we're willing to strip away our pride and be exposed in seeking forgiveness and granting forgiveness when we're hurt by others. Peter quickly shifts metaphors, so so will we, as he goes on to write, like newborn babies, Crave spiritual milk, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. The key word here, there's so much in this, this one sentence, but the key word here is crave. Crave means to yearn for something to the point that it leads to vigorous action. It becomes a consuming desire. I don't know about you, but when I hear the word crave, I think about pregnancy. Okay, when my wife was pregnant, she had cravings. I don't think I'm alone in this. Now, I can't speak from experience from the craving side, but I can speak from experience on the receiving side. When my wife got a craving for something, it fit this definition. She got a yearning for something to the point of vigorous action. And you know who needed to take vigorous action? (laughs) Me. I want this. Go get this now. That's what people... But Peter's getting at this idea of craving that something that it becomes a vigorous desire. It's a consuming desire. How do we start wearing new clothes if we're fat and happy, living on malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander? Peter's changing metaphors by changing our diet, by slimming down through controlling our desires. Peter challenges us to crave pure spiritual milk like newborn babies. But in using this image, Peter isn't telling us that we're all brand new baby Christians. No, again, the emphasis is on the word crave. What he's trying to get at is we need to develop a hunger, a thirst in the same way a baby craves its mother's breast. Think about it. If you've ever held a baby, had a baby, seen a baby, babies have a consistently unmistakable way of letting us know when they are hungry. Am I right? When a baby is hungry, they get fussy. They cry, they scream. And you've, if you've ever experienced this, you know when this happens, there's, Until they just keep going until there's nothing to be done except to feed the baby. If you're like the person holding the baby and you're in, a, in an experience where this is happening, sometimes we get so overwhelmed we'll turn to that person, just feed the child, feed the baby, feed the baby. Peter is encouraging us to foster this same kind of single-minded and tireless passion in our appetite for God. We are to get fussy. We are to cry and to scream in our desire for God. Our longing, he writes, is to be for pure spiritual milk. Again, back to babies. Milk for a baby is not a fringe benefit. It's not like a baby goes, "Mm, I think I'd like a little milk. It's not a fringe benefit. Milk for a baby is necessary for life. We know this. And so for for Peter, milk is a metaphor for the things, the food that nourishes, that grows us up, he writes, in our salvation. It's the grace of God. This milk, this pure spiritual milk, includes the word of God. We often think of it just as scripture. It includes the word of God, but it's much more than this when Peter writes about this pure spiritual milk. If you will, think of the Bible as an appetizer that leads to the main course. For Peter, this pure spiritual milk is drinking in the written word in order to feast on the living word. And that's why in the last part of this, in verse 3, he borrows from our call to worship Psalm 34 and writes, it is the Lord that tastes good. He doesn't say the word of the Lord tastes good, though it does. It's the Lord that tastes good. The milk that Peter is talking about consists of what the word of God points to, the character of God. The Word of God made flesh. God revealed in Jesus Christ. Do you remember back a couple of years? I think they're still around when you know dairy farmers wanted us to get to drink more milk, and you had the commercials for milk. Got milk? That was almost a sermon title this week. Too obvious. <laughs> but then there was another one. There was another one, right? That was milk. It does a body good. That's what Peter is saying. Pure spiritual milk are the practices and habits of life, the fruit of the Spirit. By the way, the fruit of the Spirit are those virtues that contrast with the five notorious outfits that Peter has talked about. Pure spiritual milk are the practices and habits of life, the fruit of the Spirit that build up the body, that do a body good, that strengthen us in terms of reflecting the character of God in our world. Just like a baby cannot grow, a baby needs to drink milk. Peter is stressing we need an ongoing relationship with Jesus. We cannot grow without feeding on the word and the sacrament of Christ. My friends, if you're here this morning and if you have any interest in growing spiritually, if you find yourself here this morning, you find yourself stuck or you believe you're stunted in your spiritual growth, then you need to pay attention to what Peter is saying to us. This is, may we call it, a kairos moment. God is speaking to us, all of us. You see, what Peter is putting in just three verses is two simple ideas. Our Father wants us to come clean, to strip off all the actions that destroy loving relationships. And our Father wants us to come hungry, to earnestly long for a deeper relationship with him through Jesus. Come clean, come hungry. To look at this in a slightly different way, Peter is connecting two things that we often keep separate. The first verse that we looked at in chapter 2 describes the five specific horizontal orientations to other people that we need to lay aside and stop doing. And the second verse that we just finished with describes the vertical relationship, the core of our spiritual growth, the closeness of our walk with God. Peter's whole point here is this. The way we treat one another has a direct correlation to our relationship with God. When our horizontal is messed up, our vertical will never be right. God has wired us so that the horizontal and the vertical go together. And the Apostle John, just so you know it's not Peter, will echo this same parallel in his first letter to the church. John will echo this in his first letter to the church when very bluntly he puts it like this. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen is this sinking in beloved if we are we can be and some of us are heavily involved in the church we can participate in bible studies we can pray regularly we can serve the needy we can be leading as an usher or as an elder But if we treat people unkindly, if we indulge in gossip and harbor bitterness, if we pride ourselves on our sharp tongue and our critical spirit, if we look down our nose at people, even as we are misrepresenting our own virtues, we will not grow spiritually. We will not grow closer to God. We will find ourselves feeling and experiencing more distance from the Lord. It's not God that pulls away from us It's we who are withdrawing from God because what we eat reflects what we depend on for sustenance and survival. God sets the table. Jesus provides the meal. The Holy Spirit brings the fruit. But we have to eat. We have to make the things of God our diet. But spiritual junk food, man, Let's, let's keep it real. Spiritual gu- junk food, it's okay, we can say it. Spiritual junk food tastes great. Spiritual junk food tastes great. I mean, gossip is juicy, right? Personal vengeance is sweet. But spiritual junk food never satisfies. Spiritual fast food, it'll fill us up, make us fat and happy. Spiritual fast food, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes the lie is easier to tell than the truth. I'm not lying, no pun intended. Sometimes the lie is just easier to tell rather than the truth. Baiting the hook will always at least get us a bite, right? Am I right? But spiritual fast food will kill our craving. It will dull our taste buds for what is truly good what is truly healthy, what promotes growth. If you're with me this morning, I don't know, for me, this explains one of the biggest conundrums I have as a member of the church, as a part of Christian community. This this dichotomy explains why some of us can come to church for years and never get better. Why, on the one hand, we can read our Bibles and get nothing out of it, and yet find People Magazine a compelling read. This explains why some of us can say we struggle to pray. We can never grasp the words to speak to God. We struggle with prayer. But we don't have any problem going online and spreading the latest rumor, making the latest insult or off-color comment about someone else. Some of you are on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. I'm always sensitive to it. I don't have a perfect record of what I put on Facebook. I wish some of you were as careful as I try to be. I'm shocked by some of the things that I see that some of you put on Facebook. And Facebook is ripe, ripe, ripe for dressing up without dressing up. You know what I mean? You can put on the clothes virtually and it's just out there. We struggle to pray. We never have words to speak to God. But you tell me the latest bit of gossip, I'll spread it around. You tell me the latest rumor, I can talk it up. This dichotomy explains why so many of us say worship feels stale and dull. and we come to church wherever we are and we barely sing, we rarely stand, we often get distracted and we'll throw throw stuff out there like, oh, I'm introverted, oh, I sing off-key, oh, I'm not comfortable, blah, 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 blah. We're barely here. Worship is stale and dull. But the reality is, just turn on a little reality TV or the game later this afternoon and we're glued to the set. In fact, we're so into it we'll talk back to the TV. <laughs> My friends, when we are feasting on relational garbage, empty calories, we shouldn't be surprised if we're not growing in our relationship with God. And yet, and I and I'm guilty of this too. I'm not immune to this. And yet many of us, you may be where I am at, we still just make excuses for our envy. We ignore our gossip. We make light of our cutting comments. It was just a joke. Don't be so serious. We rationalize the lies we tell, the hypocrisies we practice. Everybody does it. And we justify our resentment towards others. They deserve it. We aren't growing spiritually because we've convinced ourselves we can't grow beyond where we are right now. We're so busy. Right, we're so busy we barely have time to eat, let alone eat right. I mean, getting into the word of God, feeding off the spirit, sharing the bread of life around the table of discipleship with others sounds great. But we're so busy we barely have time to eat at all. Is this true in your life? It's supposedly true in many people's lives. We're moving so fast, our schedules are so packed, many of us frequently skip meals physically. You skip meals? If you skip meals physically, do you think it's that hard to skip meals spiritually? And when we do eat, this is another trend that's happening that I think the physical ma- ma- mirrors the spiritual, and when we do eat, is this more and more happening Yes, We rarely eat together. We're usually alone in our car while we're on the go. And should it surprise us that we have more and more followers of Jesus who will say, followers of Jesus, oh, I don't need the church, I don't need anybody else, I can feed myself. Really? We, get so, used to, we can get so used to spiritual fast food, a quick inspirational word for the day, a quick five minute moment for, of self help and positivity. It's hard to make time for anything more substantial in our lives. We don't grow closer to God because we've convinced ourselves we can't lose the weight from all those old habits that die hard. We blame our family, we blame our, our age, we blame our background, we blame our genetic makeup, we blame the way we were raised, we blame our marriage, we blame our kids, we blame our parents. Regardless, our cravings for spiritual junk food, pleasing other people, exaggerating the truth, one-upping everybody, passing judgment on others, holding on to biases and prejudices just don't go away that easy. Therefore we tell ourselves our spiritual intensity is never gonna change. Others are passionate, but I'll never be that way. I'll never delight more. I'll never love Christ more. I'll never be more bold or more joyful or more hopeful. This spiritual fatalism is rampant in the church. So, what's the answer? Is the answer try harder, be nicer to each other? God, please don't hear that this morning. Is the answer, well, uh, Pastor Chris kicked us in the butt again with Peter, man. Use Peter to kick us in the butt. we got to try harder. we got to be nicer to everybody. You're probably saying, if that's what you're hearing, we can't change. And you're right. We can't change. I can't change. In one sense, this is true. We can't change. But the answer is not trying harder or being nicer. Because as you say, and I agree, we can't change our clothes and we can't change our appetites. In the final verse that we have here, verse three, Peter points to the heart of the problem as well as to the road of a solution when he says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. In one sense, we can't change. I can't change. You can't change. It's true. In one sense, we can't change. But in another sense, we can. We can be changed by God by God working through us. If you, don't, if you walk away with this morning with nothing else, hear this because Peter is gonna build on this and it's gonna get intense and heavy what Peter's gonna throw out there. If you don't get this, then what Peter's gonna bring next is gonna feel like a weight of bricks. What Peter is setting up for us, what Peter is putting out there is spiritual growth isn't about us as much as it is about yielding to who God is, what God has done and is doing for us. Paul puts it more eloquently and more simply when he writes, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can wear the clothes God has given us if we let him dress us. We can let God give us a craving for him if we drink the milk he has provided for us. And this reorientation that Peter's talking about begins not by saying I can't as much as it does by confessing I don't want to. We've all been children if we haven't had children. And have you ever, can you remember those moments when there was this real big thing your parents were trying to teach you, trying to see, to provoke change in you. And in that friction with your parents, you would say over and over again, I can't. I can't do it. You can punish me. You can do it Everyone. I just can't do it. And your parent on the other side could see that you could, that this is possible. You could have this breakthrough. And you just kept saying, I can't, until finally, after repeated pressure, the friction, you finally at one point burst out. You maybe said something like this. All right, fine. I don't want to. And your parent goes, now we got something to work with. Now we're getting somewhere. Peter is saying the word is not I can't. It's, I don't want to. We begin by admitting we don't want to. I want to say I can't rather than say I don't want to. I'm embarrassed to say I don't want to. But the truth is, I don't want to. But when I begin by saying I don't want to, then I can say to Jesus, my heart is wrong. And I'm sorry. I put my life in your hands. I put my faith in you. I trust you regardless of how I feel. And I depend upon you to change my desires. I've been eating too much spiritual junk food. Make me hungry for you, O Lord. If you're sitting here right now and if you're struggling with this still, if you find yourself, even as this word is being preached to you, drawn towards still being critical and judgmental of others, if you still find yourself having a taste for spreading rumors, setting up people for failure, having a laugh at another person's expense, then the hard, sobering truth for you this morning is maybe you've never tasted the real thing. You remember that? Remember that back in the day when Pepsi and Coke went to war and they set up blind taste tests in a grocery store? So you could taste the real thing. Coke is the real thing. If you're struggling this morning with this word, maybe you've never tasted the real thing. Maybe we've never really experienced, experienced the goodness of God in our lives. Maybe we followed Jesus all our lives by tradition. We grew up in a Christian home. That was our people. Our people followed Jesus. That's what we did. That's, who, that just, that's where we were culturally. We're a Christian nation. Jesus. Maybe we followed Jesus because, you know what, by word of mouth. Well, you know, I kind of looked at all the different salvation options, and it seemed to me like Jesus had the best plan, best way to get to heaven. Whatever our design, some other design, many of us have still never actually engaged him Jesus, the idea of Jesus, yeah. The words of Jesus, absolutely. The person of Jesus, I am blown away by how many Christians I encounter who have never engaged the person of Jesus Christ. You haven't tasted the real thing. Have you tasted his goodness in your life? Has Has Jesus rescued you? Because I'm going to tell you something. If Jesus has rescued you, you remember it. You don't forget. You remember if Jesus rescued you. Do you in your life right now truly see, do you honestly taste the blessings God has given you? As we live in this world, this hard, cynical world, do you in the midst of all the other trendy outfits count the blessings that God has given you? Are you really tasting it? Or do you kind of do the, yeah, oh, all right, yeah, I can breathe, I have no major health problems, yeah, I got, a, I got all these things, yes, God is good to me. Are you tasting it? Has God ever answered your prayers when you cried out to him, ever? Have you tasted the goodness of God? Or maybe for some of us it's we've just forgotten. We've forgotten the goodness of the Lord. If you've tasted the real thing, then you know what I'm talking about. We, there, we, we got a taste of God's goodness when we first encountered Jesus. We got a taste of God's goodness when we first encountered the person, not the idea, not the words, the person of Jesus Christ. Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember how liberating, how joyful it was to have the burden of mistakes, of failures, of imperfections, of past sins lifted off your shoulders? Do you remember what it felt like to finally be free? Some of us have forgotten what we were like. Some of us have forgotten where we came from. Some of us have forgotten what we were wearing and what we were living on for food before Jesus changed our clothes and altered our diet. Because if we remember the goodness of the Lord, if we've experienced the goodness of the person of Jesus Christ, we don't have time. We don't have the inclination to look down on others or harbor hatred or bitterness or envy or malice in our hearts. Through dependence upon the Spirit, obedience to the Word, as you move closer to Christ through faith, not feelings, when you begin to embrace what Christ has done for you through the gospel and continues to do, God changes your desires. As we wear our gratitude for all that God has done for us proudly, and as we feast on joy, the joy, of, the, of the, what the Lord continues to do in our lives, the appeal of anger and malice and envy and all that all other spiritual junk food slips away. As we savor, I love that word, savor. Don't just wolf down your food. As we savor the taste of forgiveness. Have you savored the taste of forgiveness? Have you... Enjoyed the rich flavor of grace. Grace is not bland, it is so immeasurably rich. As we savor the rich flavor of grace, we find ourselves craving more of it. More of being with, more of being like Jesus, just as a baby craves its mother's milk. Have you tasted the real thing? Have you forgotten? Have your senses been dulled by all the spiritual junk food and fast food in your life that you have forgotten that the Lord tastes good in Jesus Christ? Because my friends, Peter commands all of us, not just you, not just me, all of us together to long, to long for that which builds up love among us. We are, let us be filled with the Spirit as we continue worshiping this morning. Let us together be dependent upon this word of God given to us by Peter, this word of God in Christ, so that we will deeply love each other, so that we will build each other up and grow in Christ together. That's why we're here. That's why we're together. Let's savor this time, this relationship we have, so that our horizontal and our vertical relationships are in alignment. Because when our horizontal and our vertical relationships are in alignment, we look good and we feel good. When our horizontal and our vertical relationships are in alignment, all is in good taste and everything tastes good. Amen.